0: Hey, everyone. I'm David Chalian, the CNN political director. This is the Daily D.C. Impeachment Watch, a podcast dedicated to up to the minute reporting and analysis into this fast moving impeachment inquiry. Tomorrow, a new public chapter in this historic saga begins. We're getting clarity on the Republican defense of the president in advance of that public phase, and we're still wading through thousands of pages of recently released transcripts. I've got two top-notch guests to help make sense of it all. In a few minutes, we'll be talking to Ross Garber, CNN legal analyst who has extensive experience litigating impeachment charges. But first, I'm joined by my colleague who has been absolutely all over the impeachment beat, CNN reporter and producer Marshall Cohen. Welcome back to the podcast, Marshall. Thank you, David. So... Marshall, we learned today more concrete details about what this is going to look like tomorrow as the impeachment inquiry uh, basically goes prime time. I know it's during the day, but I mean, it it is going to become a public television show tomorrow. Uh, What is that going to look like?
1: Yeah, you know, prime time during the daytime. (laughs) Uh, This is going to be huge. You know, and you think about the... History of the Donald Trump presidency, and you can think about some major moments on Capitol Hill, right? Robert Mueller, James Comey, Brett Kavanaugh. You can add some additional names tomorrow. Uh, So that's going to be Bill Taylor and uh, George Kent, two men who work for the State Department, career officials, not Trump appointees. Uh, They're going to tell their story. So it all kicks off tomorrow morning, 10 a.m., and, uh, you know, the committee has laid out how it's going to look and how it's going to sound. Uh, Adam Schiff, the Democrat from California, he's going to be running the show. The chairman of the House Intelligence Committee uh, sitting beside him, uh, although they're not aligned with very much, but they will sit side by side as Devin Nunes, the top Republican on the committee. They'll be bringing totally different perspectives tomorrow. So they'll give their opening statements. They'll set the table setting. And then um, the witnesses will be sworn in under oath, right? I mean, it seems kind of procedural, but, you know, they have to tell the truth by law. They could be punished for not telling the truth. So just keep that in mind tomorrow while you're watching, that these are people that have the courage to come up, get sworn in, and tell the entire world what happened and what their understanding of events really was.
0: And different than other hearings— uh, that maybe f- listeners have gotten accustomed to watching um, the chairman and the ranking member are going to have 45 minutes each to sort of prosecute the case, if you will, or at least uh, elicit the testimony that they're looking for. And they can uh, do with those 45 minutes How they would like before they start passing the baton off to all the endless members of the committee that each get five minute shots to make sure they get their local press releases and their pop on local TV and all the things that members of Congress do in high profile hearings like this. But we haven't seen this before in some other hearings where the the chairman and the ranking member really take
1: a big chunk of time to uh, lay out a narrative. It's going to be different. And, you know, we've been hearing and it seems pretty clear that the, the ranking member and the chairman, they'll they'll take their uh, their shots and they'll ask their questions, but they're also going to devote a good chunk of that opening period to their staff um, to ask the questions. Uh, staff members for the majority and the minority have already been questioning witnesses for the past month behind closed doors. They know these transcripts inside and out. They're not elected officials, right, so they don't need that uh, 30-second soundbite. They want that uh, damning testimony, and they know how to get it, um, because they're the ones who, again, were doing all the questions behind closed doors. So it's going to be different, because you're going to see folks on TV that you probably haven't seen before, and they're definitely not going to be a household name, but we've seen in some previous hearings earlier this year that they're actually better at this than the lawmakers, and they're better at asking quite direct questions to get direct answers instead of just looking for that YouTube clip that they can post on their homepage.
0: You know, we live in such polarized and partisan times. We are so accustomed in the Trump era to so much noise uh, in the hourly or quarter hourly news cycles that we live in. But I think we can't sort of underestimate, as you stated at the top, Marshall, the moment of of history here, we shouldn't underestimate it. It absolutely. is absolutely it is um, think it about is no small thing to begin uh, and, and pursue the impeachment of the president of the United States of America, and it is. Um, I know it can feel small in today's back and forth, um, but it's actually quite
1: quite huge and historic. Tomorrow, you nailed it. I mean, consider where we are. Only th- this will be the third time. In the history of this country, which has been around for hundreds of years, and there's been 45 presidents, 45 men that have sat in Donald Trump's shoes, and, and uh, he will be the third person to ever have to turn on his TV. Uh, like I guess Andrew Johnson didn't have a TV back in the day, but he'll be the third president in U.S. history to ever have to read about his own impeachment and to have to grapple with this, uh, this crisis for him and for his White House. It's totally historic. Uh, You wrote
0: an amazing piece today to sort of set up uh, the arguments and the pieces of narrative that we're going to hear tomorrow and in in the weeks ahead and all this testimony. And you sort of broke it up, I thought, in a wise way. You sort of said, here are the things that are out there that are going to be used in the case for impeachment. And here are the data points out there that are going to be used in the case
1: against impeachment. Can you give us a couple of highlights from each column? First off, let me say, I'm not trying to create some false balance here, right? There's a few things on both sides, but big picture, it looks like the Democrats have compiled a pretty strong case for the accusations that they're prepared to make. So, you know, diving into it, Democrats have said, first and foremost, the president has solicited a foreign country to get involved in our democracy that's wrong. It's an abuse of power. It goes against what the framers of the Constitution wanted. One expert told me this is precisely what they invented impeachment to deal with, something like this. So that's going to be part of their case. They're going to hone in on the quid pro quo. Uh, They've got testimony in their back pocket from a handful of key witnesses that said, I was there. I understood, and the Ukrainians understood, that they needed to do X, Y, and Z to get what they wanted from the White House, right? You know, the military assistance and a visit. Um, Not only that, but Democrats also have been saying the president, every time one of his people ignores a subpoena or doesn't hand over documents, it's ironclad proof of obstruction. That's what Democrats are saying. They did, uh, back in the Nixon era, bring an article of impeachment against him uh, in the Committee for Obstruction. Yep. Uh, Adam Schiff has been saying that he is basically licking his lips to do that again. Yeah, here. he's
0: done uh, more than hinting. I will say on the flip side of your in the other side of your piece, which everyone should go read at cnn.com, Check out Marshall Cohen's piece. Um, I thought Rick Santorum's comments in your piece mm-hmm. about um, the scope of authority a president has when it comes to sort of the foreign policy area. Uh, I'll just read the quote here. This is from uh CNN contributor, former Republican senator from Pennsylvania, Rick Santorum. You're taking a president and you're going after him for an abuse of authority in an area where it's almost impossible to abuse authority because he has almost absolute authority in that area. It's just a big reach for them, he went on to say. And I, I, when I read that, I thought, you know— I'm intrigued by that argument, if that's what we're going to hear Republicans say, that that they're going to try to carve out this zone of policymaking as sort of an absolute authority for the president.
1: Right. And I think it's contested among the legal community whether or not the president has those absolute powers. Definitely, it would be a good rhetorical argument to make. Uh, But, yeah, I mean, Senator Santorum made a good point, you know, and and I was chatting with him and he said, look, uh, Nixon, like, Okay. It was obvious, right? They're breaking in. They're stealing stuff. Those are, you know, campaign finance, slush funds. Those were clear criminal violations. Bill Clinton, we, everyone pretty much agreed that he lied under oath and asked other people to commit perjury. So those are clear crimes. We're here with Donald Trump. It's not necessarily a crystal clear crime. And it comes under diplomacy, foreign policy that the presidents in our country over the years have had a lot of authority to, to delegate.
0: Okay, stay right there, Marshall. We're going to take a quick break. When we're back, we're going to be joined by CNN legal analyst and impeachment expert Ross Garber right after this. Welcome back to the Daily D.C. Impeachment Watch. I'm David Chalian. Reporter Marshall Cohen is still with me. And we're pleased to welcome CNN legal analyst Ross Garber. Thanks so much for being here, Ross. It's good to be here. Um, I believe that we are going to hear a lot. And I believe this with good authority because the House Republicans uh, issued an 18-page memo today sort of laying out what we're going to hear in the arguments to defend the president. But I think we're going to hear a lot about... Um, that there's no evidence that goes to the president's intent. I I think we're going to start hearing a lot about what his actual frame of mind and intention was. Uh, It seems I'll just read you from the conclusion of this memo and get your take on it. Um, It says here that uh, the summary of this is from the House Republicans. uh, They put out this memo today. The summer, And this is their conclusion. The summary of President Trump's conversation with President Zelensky reflects no conditionality or pressure. And Zelensky himself said he felt no pressure. Trump never raised U.S. security assistance to Zelensky. And ultimately, the assistance was released and a presidential meeting occurred without Ukraine investigating the president's political rivals. Simply put, the evidence gathered to date does not support the Democratic allegation that President Trump pressured Ukraine to investigate the president's political rivals for his benefit in the 2020 presidential campaign. What do you make of that? Yeah, you?
2: so, I, you know, I, I read the Republican memo, too, uh, and I think there are going to be four main defenses. One is that the House process is defective. I think we should expect to hear that from Devin Nunes tomorrow and some of the other members. The second is that uh, and it goes to the president's intent that the president reasonably believed there were corruption problems in Ukraine uh, that he was trying to address. Uh, and in that conclusion, uh, you know, I, I wrote down uh, what I thought was very significant from that conclusion you read from, is that that the House Republicans said that Trump had a deep-seated, genuine, and reasonable skepticism toward Ukraine. That is a phrase you see actually a couple of times in the memo. Maybe it's two, it may even be three. Keep an eye on that quote. That's going to be a key part of the defense. Third is that Trump didn't insist on a quid pro quo, uh, and especially not with respect to to aid. If anybody was out there trying to arrange a quid pro quo, it doesn't go to the president. And then finally, no harm, no foul, Ukraine got the aid. I think that's that's going to be what we see tomorrow from the Republicans.
0: And do you, I mean, this is a silly question, I guess, to some extent. Uh, it's not like any of those republic any of those arguments are going to hold water with the Majority of the Democrats who are going to end up voting in the House on articles of impeachment, but the question is, do you think those arguments are strong enough to keep the Republicans in the Senate when a trial gets there from defecting
2: from the president? All right, yeah, the answer is I think so, but I'm not even there yet because I'm. I, I think I think it's going to be very interesting. This is a very fluid situation. I mean, you know, think back six months ago. I don't think. Any of us would have predicted we would be here. So I'm not taking anything as a foregone conclusion. I think the most interesting thing to do now is to watch the American people, see if there's movement among in, in among core constituencies among the electorate, um, and then also see what happens with you know moderate Republicans and and more importantly moderate. Democrats. See if, if Pelosi can hold on to her caucus to vote in favor of impeachment and see whether she can pick off any Republicans. Even before we get to the Senate, that's what I'm looking for.
0: Wow. You're not even sold that articles of impeachment are going to pass out of the House. So, look, I,
2: I think it is very likely. Pelosi has the votes to do it. Right. Very, very, very likely. But, okay. but let me say this. If we get to a point and it's two, three, four, five weeks hence and public opinion hasn't moved. And remember, you know, not a single Republican voted to even authorize this impeachment investigation and two Democrats even voted against. I think there is a chance, small chance, but a chance that we should keep an eye out for that if not a single Republican votes in favor of impeachment and Pelosi doesn't get her caucus and maybe even loses some members in addition to those two, maybe, maybe Some people are going to be
1: asking her to look for an off-ramp. You know, uh, that's a pretty intriguing possibility. I think a counterpoint to that would be that a lot of Democrats were watching closely uh, last week at the elections across the country, trying to test out whether or not Donald Trump was right when he kept saying that, you know, impeach me all you want. This is just going to rev up my base, rev up my people. They're going to come out in droves because they're upset that you're trying to kick me out. It didn't really materialize.
2: Yeah, uh, yeah and I'm, uh, let's be clear: I'm not saying my scenario is the likely scenario, right? But I don't think it's a crazy scenario, and I think it's one to, to keep an eye on. And 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 we know Speaker Pelosi has been concerned about talking about impeachment as a way to motivate the base. She dragged Democratic, her feet yeah, for so many months. That, that's right, and and I, I I I would assume it's because the Democrats have data showing that people vote because of jobs, they vote because of health care, they vote because of immigration, they vote because of all these things. And maybe, maybe, you know, impeachment, maybe Ukraine isn't one of those things that either moves undecided voters or gets Democrats out of the polls.
0: Ross, I want you to hear what Kellyanne Conway, the advisor to the president, uh, said this morning on Fox News uh, and about why she thinks these hearings are not going to go the way the Democrats uh, expect them to go. And then tell me which one of your main arguments of defense you think Kellyanne Conway is fitting into here. Here she is.
2: Every witness up there so far has said, uh, I assumed, I interpreted, it's conjecture. I I heard it from somebody, heard it from somebody, heard it from somebody. And here's my interpretation. Folks, that is not how we impeach and remove presidents who are democratically elected. That's how the cheerleaders find out which which one of them is going to be asked to the prom by the quarterback. Uh, Look, I I don't know from cheerleaders and quarterbacks. I wasn't the quarterback. Uh, I wasn't on the football team. But I don't think that's going to be one of the key selling points. And and these aren't the. Just to be clear, these aren't my points. These are the the House the Republican, Republican points. points yes, yeah, I, I, I could argue. The which Demo-
0: of these of those four yeah. main arguments do you think she's trying to fit into here?
2: Geez, I, 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 I think there I, I think I think this may be sort of a different one. OK. And I think one of the challenges is, you know, there isn't a cohesive, coherent defense coming out of the White House, um, because I think there's still a lot we don't know. And I think the Republicans may not and, and the president may not think that there needs to be one yet. You know, really, right now, what the Republicans are probably doing is kind of pulling blocks out of the Jenga tower, because it's the Democrats that have to build that tower to meet that high bar of impeachment.
1: Right, and you know, it, it, no wonder you're struggling to sort of fit Kellyanne into the House <laughs> Demo- uh, into the the House Republican defense, because, as you said, David, they're operating on slightly different planes. You know what's not in those Republican House Republican talking points? is that this was a perfect phone call with Ukraine. And the president has been begging and pleading with them to make that case. If you look at his tweets, he is asking his allies to make that case that it was a perfect call. They even printed up T-shirts right at his rallies that say, read the transcript. They're not making that case. They're making a similar case, but they are not saying... That's a perfect call. And I wonder if as we get deeper into this, and Trump doesn't hear what he wants to hear from his allies in Congress, that they maybe take a more, uh, you know, a more disciplined and legalistic approach, as opposed to his PR approach. Is he going to get upset?
0: Ross, why do you think that
2: a perfect call is not listed in those talking points? Um, I I think it's because it's going to be tough to say it's a perfect call, because it's not just about the call. And the perfect call does not explain rudy you know the 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 president's personal lawyer is running around conducting diplomacy seemingly with the president's blessing on behalf of the united states a perfect call defense does not explain rudy at all you've got to go to a, a different approach to explain rudy
0: fascinating. Marshall, final question for you. Looking forward to next week. I know we've got Taylor and
1: Kent tomorrow. Who are
0: you looking forward to next week on the witness stand that you think is going to drive this entire uh, saga?
1: Yeah, I mean, Democrats clearly think this is just phase one, you know, and tomorrow is going to be enormous. But they've got stuff up their sleeve for next week. I really think uh, you're going to hear the names Fiona Hill, a lot and Alexander Vinman. Those are two officials uh, formerly and currently at the White House National Security Council. These are experts, career folks, military, people that know actually what they're talking about when it comes to Russia and Ukraine. And I read hundreds of pages of their transcripts. It was damning stuff. So we'll see that publicly probably as soon as next week.
0: Marshall Ross, thank you so much for joining me on the Daily DC Impeachment Watch. And thanks to our listeners. We've got a new episode for you every weeknight. So please make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, whatever your favorite podcast app is. And while you're there, leave us a rating or a comment. It really helps people find the show. We'll see you tomorrow.